Hello out there. This is Launch Love Podcast. I'm Rain Phoenix, your host. Today, our very special guest is Jim White, launching Ane Diaz. He produced her record, Despechada, out now everywhere. Don't forget, rate and subscribe. Follow us on all socials at Launch Left. Hi, Jim White. Welcome to Launch Left. Hey, nice to meet you. I know. This is really, I guess, our first time meeting. Well, yeah, I've heard a lot about you from uh, from Ane. I know. Uh, How are you? And I, I know people down in, in Gainesville, and I guess you lived in Gainesville for a while. So I've heard people mention your name a lot. And you live you know, in, where are you? Uh, right now I'm in Athens, but I grew up in Pensacola, so I wasn't too far from Gainesville. Okay. So that's where that beautiful, strong Southern accent is from. I did, uh, yeah, but see, I'm a Yankee. Uh, my parents are Yankees. Um, but at, at a certain point, I just decided I'd, I'd fake it and see if I could assimilate. Um, uh, for the first five years, I, I came to the South when I was five. From five to ten, I was that nice Yankee boy. And uh, you get tired of being that nice Yankee boy. <laughs> so I, I remember the first time I said y'all um, instead of you all. So that disqualifies me from being a, a Southerner. <laughs> I was listening to your records this morning, such breadth and scope to the the songs and the records you put out. And, um, uh, you know, there were a few that really jumped out at me, but I usually don't even go into that because I'm more interested in what first, like what was, what were the drivers for you of music? Did you, did you come to that as the first thing that you wanted to do when you were a kid or did you find it by way of other journeys? No, I thought music was something that other people did. Um, and I was an athlete. I was a, a, a pro surfer. Um, and I broke my leg twice in one year, badly, both times and couldn't walk for a year. And just by a twist of fate, my, I was living with my older sister and her husband and uh, someone, one of their friends left a guitar at the house. And, you know, you can only watch $10,000 pyramid so many times. This is back in the, in the seventies. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Sixties, no seventies. You can only watch it so many times before you, you know, you start planning killing sprees. And so I turned the TV off and just started trying to learn how to play guitar as, you know, out of desperation. Um, and I'm, I'm self-taught. I never learned any songs by anybody. I don't know one song by another person. I, I tried to learn them. I learned half of Stairway to Heaven and half of uh, uh, Fire and Rain by James Taylor. Um, and it was just too hard. So I started writing my own songs. Um, didn't know there was such a thing as conventional tuning. Um, I, I kind of am operating on a weird frequency at times. So when I got signed to the record deal, I'd never performed, never been in a bands, never sung into a microphone, um, any of the things that people normally do. Um, just and, and when they said, you got to put the band together, it's like, oh, oh, you can't. Yeah, OK, all right. So and then the band guys would say, like, well, what are you tuned to here? And I'd say, I don't know. I just tune this string here and that string there. And <laughs> I had all kinds of weird tunings. And <laughs> it was a, a, certainly a learning curve. 
Is that I made right? up the tuning and then I made up chords that sounded good in the tuning and no wow. one could figure out what I was playing because none of the strings were tuned. It wasn't even, you know, in pitch. It was like halfway between an E and a, and a, and a D or whatever the chords are or the notes are. Um, so yeah, it was, a it was, it, I just did it as therapy. Um, and I didn't really see any need to organize anything in it. Just saw it as therapy, you know, sit in my room and play my guitar. Mm, wow. Once you were signed to a record label, did 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 the suffering begin in terms of thinking about your art as a commodity or was it exciting? Was it like, wow, people recognize and actually want to hear what I have to say? Or was it a mixed bag? I was just incredulous because uh, over the years, I, I, I started playing guitar when I was 18 and I got signed to a record label when I was 38, completely a, a weird fluke, uh, you know, when David Byrne signed me. And when he heard the tape, maybe five people in the world had ever heard me play music. Um, so <laughs> that might be a record for, you know, like the least saturation in the music industry when you, and getting a, a deal. But uh, no, um, I, I was kind of incredulous that they would, they would, would want it because I had some of the five people, two or three of them I played, uh, a tape for that I that I made just documenting the songs and and um, uh, one was a great trombone player named Micah Robinson and and Micah listened to it and at the end he said, "Well, you have a serious intonation problem." <laughs> and uh, and then another person said, "Oh, you're tone deaf too." Um, I am too. And it's like okay, maybe I shouldn't share this with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So uh, it, I did not expect it to to be anything and and as far as commodity goes you know uh, i i uh, i was a cab driver for 10 years um and i would happily commodify uh my child's soul to get out of cab driving because it was really uh detrimental to my mental health mm. uh in in a big way um i was losing my mind um and sooner or later i would have gotten shot or driven my car off a bridge or something because i have crazy mood swings at times and um so uh no it was fine for them to commodify it um because what they're commodifying isn't the song to me that that's just the the byproduct of of what came out you know that's like okay that's that thing when people send me versions of my song that they do where they change lyrics and stuff um they're afraid i'm going to get mad at them it's like that's not my song that's your song now you know it's just like the old the old songs from the mountains those songs were passed down, like Knoxville Girl was passed down for hundreds of years, generations, and they changed it and they added added parts and they, uh, you know, uh, put their own perspective on things. And so I don't I don't really hold too too far to that. On my publishing company, they do. If they if if someone uses one of my songs, you can't you're not going to deal with a nice guy like me. You're going to deal with um, lawyers, right? Right, <laughs> as is there. Um, that's their job. You're supposed to yeah. do that for sure. Um, I, have you had an interest in any other art forms beside music as therapy? Do you draw? Do you paint? Do you uh, act? Do you? I know you produce, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But has there been any other way that creativity has uh, has I shown was itself? I'm a visual to you? artist. I'm a visual thinker. Everything has to be visual. In my house, you can see there's junk everywhere because when I'm working on records, I have to actually see something before I think to put it in a song. So whenever I'm playing playing along and thinking what would go good here, I'm 
scanning the room and saying, oh, that thing there and that thing here and this thing here. I'm just a real intensely visual person. So, um, yeah, I did. Uh, I was in, in high school. I always won all the art awards uh, for uh I, I did a lot of weird pen and ink drawings. You know, I, I took a, a fair amount of acid and, um, and there was a wonderful uh, byproduct of it, which was a, I could draw strange things that no one else could draw. Um, so, yeah, I, I loved I loved visual art. And then I kind of hit a wall with it because I don't uh, I don't tap into the mainframe of something like with music. I didn't tap into the mainframe by learning that EADGB, you know, tuning and all that stuff. It was the same thing where I got, I was just sick of, of drawing weird psychedelic stuff with a pen and ink. Um, and so I kind of quit. And that's right about the time that, that, that music came along. And I was quite adept at, at the visual art. So it was, um, uh, it was, discouraging to go to something that i was not good at um but it, that's a healthy cycle you know once you get good at something quit it and go to something else and pretty soon you know if you're a mosaicist like me like i, I mosaic my world together um having all of these little elements uh like skills you know like visual arts and music and uh you know poetry and literature and all those things and you can put them all together, you know, it, it becomes more satisfying, especially if one of them gets taken away. Um, you can see my hand, see this fingers crooked here. I got I got caught, uh, my hand caught in an electric saw uh, when I was uh, in my 20s. And I was quite a quite a, a good guitar player by then. And um, I had uh, only that finger worked after it for about a year. Um, so um you know that that was taken away from me and i didn't i no longer could play guitar and pour my soul out through that so it was good that i had other ways that i could do it what's wild is that you use those limitations to such powerful end and and i'm assuming that even that accident led to supporting um other artists by producing their music for example on ideas who's going to be joining us soon uh, did, you know, producing means maybe that you didn't have to play every little thing, but you are more visioning uh, sound and and uh, picking almost like you're the picking hand of someone else's vision or music. Is, or how would you explain how perhaps those two things work together in concert? Well, my, my records have a, a real specific sound to them. Um and when people contact me, like when Anne contacted me, she liked the sound of my records. And so she wanted a record that sounded as complex and layered and cinematic as what my records sound like. Um, so I know how to do that. And um, when I started, I was really lucky. My first record, Luakabop uh, signed me, uh, David Byrne and Yale Evelev, the Luakabop guys. And they signed me and they kept trying to get these famous producers to, to do the album for basically nothing like Mitchell Froom and the Dust Brothers and all of these different really, you know, top flight producers. And they just kept getting turned down because my demo was so bad. Um, sound only came out of one speaker on my demo because I didn't know how to make sound come out of two speakers. Uh, I had a busted Bostex four track, if you remember those. Oh yeah, uh, I have one. I had a friend in the film business and he said, Oh, I know this guy who writes soundtracks. Maybe he would help you. And his name is Paul Rabjohns and he produced my first record. And he, he is, uh, 
he he does he writes scores for films and soundtracks and he's incredibly versatile as a musician um and so i learned from from him when we were making wrong eye jesus and not always in a in uh the most comfortable way because he was an overcommitter he would tell five different people that he was going to be in five different places at the same time so i'd walk into the studio in the morning he'd turn on the the, the pro tools the early pro tools and he'd say oh he's english um, I just have to pop downstairs a moment. I'll be right back. And seven hours would pass. And so in those seven hours, you know, he, he was, he was there for all the, the, the core recording, like the drums and the bass and, and the guitar. But after that, he was gone and I had a studio. And so I just started figuring out how to do everything myself. So it was really uh, educational. Uh, and when he was there, he was just, you know, just as brilliant a musician as you'd ever want to meet. So I, I, I was really lucky and, and I would not have had success without him. Among other things, we booked a studio for three weeks and three weeks later, uh, it wasn't, the record wasn't ready. And he said, well, we'll just keep going. Uh, don't worry. You don't have to pay me anymore. And uh, so we, we, I worked another three weeks, um, in his studio. Obviously, you were meant to do music because you had kind of guides that along the way provided space, time, you know, the label, whatever it was, it kind of got you going. You know, it wasn't I, just going to be in your closet and alone about it. That's great. Well, it's, it's, it's certainly uh, faded, uh, as as the Muslims say, uh, Allah wills it, right? Um, yeah, I, um, if, I, if I had tried, to be a professional musician, I would have given up because, you know, you play in bands and you haul your equipment around, you go to bars and you, you know, you're riding the van with people with stinky feet that put them up next to you in the seat. And, you know, I, I'm not cut out for that. So I went straight from five people have heard my music in the world to opening for David Byrne, um, wow. entering the world with a band. Um, so, so yeah, uh, that's that, that middle zone right there. I would have never made it through, you know, like playing at the holiday Inn and then playing a, a small festival with your two buddies and then, uh, getting some traction on regional radio and, you know, then building a fan base and all the things that you have to do. Mm. Um, I didn't do any of those. Oh, I just man. flying out of nowhere. Um, and so, so clearly. There's some reason for me being here. Uh, there's some organizing principle that's that's pulled me in this direction. Absolutely. I think your music speaks to that. And so for those of you out there listening and watching, go down the Jim White rabbit hole. It is worth your morning, afternoon, week to check out his catalog. It's really uh, important and, and powerful stuff. Um and what a story, what a what a launch left-like story, David Byrne, discovering you and taking you on tour as the opening act. Talk about tipping your hat to someone that no one knows and feels needs to know of you. And he did that, and, and it, it, it is why you're here now. Um, yeah, and I, you, wasn't, I wasn't good at performing. Um, he just decided he was going to help me. So, uh, you know, sometimes I hear like it's, it's fun to take shots at famous people and I hear people taking shots at, at him. And it just it infuriates me because he is a really good person. Yeah, you can you can see that. And, and a musical genius. And I don't use that lightly. Um, so 
that's such a cool story. I didn't, I didn't know that somehow. Yeah. Um, in regard to producing on a Diaz's record, I know you had some help, um, Paul Fonfara, oh, yeah. and I'm going to bring on a in so you all can kind of talk about that with me together, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. All right. We're going to welcome on to the show. Welcome on a Diaz to launch left. Hi. So happy Again. to be here with my friend Jim White. Can't believe it. Yeah. I miss you, man. Did, did you tell Rain about our, the first time we met? I was playing in Athens right when I first started being a musician. And my, my first record was out. And, and I got a show in Athens. And I didn't know anything about it. And I, I thought, okay, Athens, cool town, REM, all those kind of people. So I, I figured REM and everybody would be in the audience because that's I knew nothing about this world. And um, so I showed up and it was at a really popular place called Tasty World. And it was filled with, uh, it was a Saturday night. And it was filled with drunken frat boys uh, shouting at the top of their lungs. And I play real quiet, introspective songs. And, and there were three people, four people maybe standing in the front, um, with really pained expressions on their faces. And I figured, okay, those are my fans. Um, so I, I, I couldn't really hear myself sing because the roar of the place was so like a Saturday night bar loud. And so I, I sang about six songs and then I gave up. And, and afterwards, this very nice, beautiful lady came up and apologized and handed me this beautiful scarf to give to my daughter, Willow, who was, uh, about four years old then. Um, and it was such a, a touching gesture after a kind of a demoralizing night that I always remembered it. So flash ahead 20 years and Ane contacts me and says, uh, you know, uh, uh, would you produce my record? And by the way, I used to live in Athens. And I, I looked at her like, you are you the person who gave me the scarf 20 years ago? And uh, she was. <laughs> uh, we that had that so scarf. Both my kids grew up wearing that dress-up scarf for, you know, putting it on dolls and all that. And I, it's, it's around here somewhere. I, I, I want to find it and, and put it on eBay and sell it for a lot of money. You know? <laughs> Proud fund my next uh, luxury vehicle. <laughs> yes, that's a great story. I hadn't heard that. So thank you for sharing. I don't Yeah, that was that. a very much like... I was feel so sorry for everybody else so that they're missing the greatness of Jim White. I'm like, so you're like looking back, like, what's your shot? You know, like completely like looking at some people that were talking, giving them the look of death as much as I could, you know, like, <laughs> listen to this amazing man, shut up, people. But it, it, it's true. I felt so like, sorry that these people are so ignorant that I had this scarf on. I'm like, I have to give them something. So, and he said, I did, just had a baby. I'm like, okay. It was a flamenco scarf too. So it was just like, what is the baby going to do with that? But I was like, yeah, she'll grow up into that. They grow. Oh, it got a lot of use. It got a lot. <laughs> it, it was it was the centerpiece in many spy outfits. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That was the poor, that was the purpose. I'm so happy to hear that. I love that story. And if you see the talent on, on Jim White's daughters, are they're both amazing. So I think I'm 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 loving that they they got to play with that. So I just sell it. Now the girls are all so popular. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, um, speaking of beautiful things, your your record on a Diaz Despachada, which uh, Jim White here produced along with Paul Fanfara, I would love to hear like 
give me a snapshot, you guys, of like a day in the life of uh, like one day in the studio, what, what that felt like. And maybe each of you, I'm sure, has a different takeaway story, but I'd love to hear a little bit about um, what it was like to actually make the record because it's turned out so freaking perfect. I don't know how else to say it, but it's perfect. It's it's a perfect record, I think. And and so I'm I kind of love to know a little bit of the ins and outs if you don't mind sharing. Sure. Anna, you want to go first? Well, I, I gotta say the one thing I'm gonna say about is that the magic of this album is thanks to, to Jim White and Paul from Farah for sure. I had like the, this idea of it had to be someone who understood magic. And from the first seconds I ever heard Jim White's music, I I knew it was magic. I knew that he was transporting me to something that like I haven't heard before, like a room, an environment. Each song was just this space. It was so cinematic, so full of imagery, you know, in in the music and his words and his voice and everything. But the the use of magic, that's as I call it, is when when I was like, Jim White is the only person I really like to do this album. And uh, so I got the chance at one point to like, I asked my friend, Bill Bryson, I was like, hey, Jim White is in town. And you think that I can ask him about, you know, doing this album? And I found him a couple of times. And I got so nervous. I pretty much hit wherever he was. I was so nervous because there he was in the room. I do that when I really like admire people. I, I avoid them. But uh, <laughs> eventually I asked Bill, I was like, hey, invite him to a show because you think he might want to do this? And then we went to a book opening. A friend of ours was doing a release, a book, um, pre- book release. <laughs> and uh, he came over and I asked him right then. And they're like, would you be interested in doing folk music, uh, Venezuelan folk music? And he immediately said yes, which I was like, wow, awesome. That was easy. But then later on, he was, what, what was your response later, Jim? Well, when you said folk music, I thought like C, D, G chord. Um and so, and you warned me uh, a, a couple of weeks in, you said, do you want to hear this music uh, to get ready for this? And I was like, ah, it's folk music. <laughs> and so, and then when you finally sent me the songs, um, I, you know, I, I can pick up a guitar and it, and if any song's playing, I can play along somehow or other, you know, I can, I, with those songs you sent me, I had not a fucking clue what was going on. Not, not from the first note, why the chords were changing, what the chords were. I had not the slightest idea. And I realized that uh, the, the way that I make records is by, I play along on, yeah, behind me, there's a marimba and pianos and drums and all this kind of stuff. And I didn't know what I would be able to do to help this record come to life. But I did know someone um, who, who, he plays in a lot of bands that play Latin music, among other things. He's he's brilliant, um, a, a brilliant arranger, composer, Paul Fonfara. He lives in in Minneapolis. He had just finished making this beautiful uh, film uh, music uh, experimental piece called "The Seven Secrets of Snow," uh, which had been funded by the Minnesota Council for the Arts. He's playing at that level where the Council for the Arts pay for stuff and it was it was a a 15 piece orchestra playing saws and tin whistles and you know hubcaps with these beautiful uh, 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 film clips going on behind it and it was such a magical night and I just kind of finished that right when I met 
uh, on a the second time and uh, so I thought he would he would be the right person and so I contacted him and he he's he's all for it he's he's a, he's very game and he's so uh, adept at every musical style um, and so I, I told on a the only way this is going to work is if uh, we we get Paul Fonfara involved because uh, I can't produce it by myself and she's like well, I don't know. That could be expensive. And I said, yeah. You know, he lives up in Minneapolis. And she said, oh, we have an apartment in Minneapolis. No problem. We can do it there. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it was so strange. He was in Minneapolis and they, they her and her husband, uh, their family uh, were from there. So we had a free place to stay. We didn't have to fly anybody. So um, it was it was inexpensive to make the record. Um and Paul has a full stable of the world's best musicians. He's got like a saw player up there that can play like Gershwin on the saw. You know, it's like uh, he, he has such a great stable of musicians. Wow. And he, he plays like six instruments as good as anybody around. So it was it was like, OK, this this is how this is going to come together. And then we went up there and, you know, met people and 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 dove in. What typically what we do when I'm producing is we go into a studio and we get core tracks. So we get drums, we get bass, we might get a few overdubs, but then we bring everything back to my home here where I have a thousand instruments and we start experimenting and, and trial and error and see, see what happens. So we got these really beautiful core tracks up there with, uh, with Holly was engineering and, and JT was on, on drums and Liz was on um, standup bass and everybody was, you know, willing to go outside their comfort zone. Um, there were times when, because these songs are so uh, iconic and, and, you know, etched into people's minds i really didn't want them to sound like they sounded normally and, and i didn't either so we had to kind of reinvent them and that that sometimes took some wandering in in the darkness um mm. and and a lot of musicians give up when you when you take them take them too far out of their comfort zone i've, I've had musicians uh, frustrated at times because you know musicians like to settle into their groove and my whole thing is let's let's not Let's wander in unexplored territory and see what accidents happen. And and it takes the top level musicians like the the I did a record with Joe Henry with all of his crew and and they're all on Grammy winning records and stuff. They got it. They they wandered and they were so happy and they'd hear something that was like you know a middle seven and a half instead of a middle eight and they'd go that's cool <laughs> instead of hey you need another half bar to round that out to make it a middle eight you know. Yeah. So yeah. when you get to musicians at at the top of the peak, they're not afraid of of wandering in the darkness because they always know where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, the the people that Paul brought in, they were they were at that level. Sounds yeah. like magic, like you're describing the magic Anne was talking about. You know, like that. You, that... you see it right there, right? That's exactly what I'm talking about. I kind of you can tell that in Jim's work that he does that. You know, but the also thing, the other thing that we didn't do is that we didn't. I didn't. We didn't want to hear the songs. I, I, we'd rather not play the original songs. Maybe we did it once at the end, you know, just to see. You see how different this is after we already have done it. It was because we really wanted to capture my memory of the songs and not, you know, how they're supposed to be played. And I didn't want them to get too scared or what. Oh no, we definitely do not want to sound anything like it. So I was so scared that they would hear it and try to sound like it, you know, or try to because it's our tendency because. They're folk songs. I don't want to call them covers 
I call them folk songs. Uh, so that it gives me the permission to to mess them up. And we did a fabulous job in doing that. And some of the songs that I was like, oh, this is going to be so hard. These are like Carmela, for example. It's a crazy drum. Well, Jim did it by himself. And then we had to translate it to the drummer. But I was, when I heard him, like, you got it. This is immediately like, yeah, I don't know when at what hour of the day he, find, he got this amazing beat and understood. It's very complicated, you know, very Latino and it was supposed to, you know, the original has actually you know, skin drums, like, you know, real, you know, African drums, hand drums. And and then all of a sudden, here comes the song. I'm like, it's done. We got it. We got the bone. We got the bone. When, when we had the bone, we can go for the rest. But a lot of the bone was created with Jim's uh, rhythmic genius and and his, uh, his knowing how to hear sounds. When to break them, too, because I'm, I'm so to, look, we got to keep going. It's like, no, we're going to break here. We're going to do this. And then we're gonna go a little longer than, than you think it's gonna go, and then we're gonna come back. And that was that was a lot of the the stuff that that Jim helped me. Like, hey, come on, hang in there with me, and it's gonna be okay. <laughs> well, Paul Paul Fonfera too. Paul, yeah. uh, we would send sketches to Paul, and Paul uh, writes music. I can't write music. I can't read music. Paul writes and reads music, and he would sort of interpret it. You know, the stuff that I was trying to get at, he would interpret it, and he would turn it into sheet music so that when we could walk into a studio, we could hand the sheet music to the musicians and say, this is the basic, uh, these are the notes that are being played at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so Paul was really, really instrumental in helping us. We had we had probably two months, three months of just sketching out uh, roughs for the songs because we didn't, we didn't want to, to just recreate them. In fact, Paul knew some of the songs. Paul plays them in some of his bands. Mm. Um, and so uh, when we were sketching, we were trying to honor the spirit of the song, but take it in a, in a different direction. Yeah, and um, my question of that and something on Ney you mentioned too about these are Latin songs. Like You chose to work with non-traditional musicians and producers, which I find really interesting and a courageous certainly in in maybe the latin music world because you're doing you're, you're reimagining venezuelan folk songs but with people who aren't latino so it was like for you that took some courage and also for you jim as a producer um some courage to to have that responsibility with ane to reimagine these songs you know, understanding that these aren't traditional even slightly, but on top of it, you're not Latino doing the reinterpretation. Was that difficult for both of you or was it just a no brainer and didn't even think about it? Like why put labels? You know, I want to know how that felt at the time. I had to say that, that, you know, I almost wanted this project to be exactly how it's turned out. Uh, This music already, us us Latinos know a lot of these songs and we understand them and they're part, but part of of this project is to, you know, share this music with amazing musicians like Jim White and Paul Fanfare and Liz and JT. I mean, these people that are really, and they've never, and one of the things that I got back and then even also with, even with, with our group that we have, we just played in LA, they're grateful of like, well, I'm so glad to have experienced this because they, it had a different like Jim is saying, it wasn't like what you were expecting to be the same chords or the same progressions. So we kind of sent everybody to for a little like, hmm. and when you send people like these geniuses to do that, it makes me feel really good. And also now they know Venezuelan music. It's not, you know, it's not the same. It's like all oh, Latin music is the same. I know you can, some people can tell that, of course, Brazilian music, Bolivian music, uh, you know, salsa and all of that. And all of a sudden, there's these Venezuelan songs that we know them, but you know, 
we I wanted to show that we are a country with our own music that it sounds very different than other songs as well, you know, than other countries. So I feel and it, was, it was a great introduction to my favorite people. And, and I, I think we, I made good friends from 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 this, you know, this odd songs uh, for, for most people. They seem odd and here, you know. So I, I think we made friends. Don't you think we made some friends over there, Jim? Some people, I mean, Paul loved them. He was like, these are weird, but I like them, you know. Yeah, um, in, in terms of like uh, cultural propriety, um, I don't I don't think about that too much. I, I think music is tapping into fundamental wavelengths, intervals, sequences, and I think that that is available to everyone. <laughs> yes. um, and, but if you if you try to you know if you do the Ima Sumac thing where you pretend you're a, a, an Incan princess um, to sell more records, then then that's in the in the sixties. She was this singer with a five octave range, um, and she uh, was discovered by explorers who found this woman who sang to the birds, uh, Y-M-A-S-U-M-A-K, that's uh, how you spell her name, Ima Sumek. And she was a, an Incan princess, and, and she released this record that is just phenomenally exotic and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Pretty soon, someone starts snooping around, and it turns out that uh, she's actually uh, a Jewish woman from Long Island uh, named Amy Camus, Ima Sumac. It's reversed. Oh, uh, I didn't know that part. That's interesting. Yeah, and she was the Millie Vanilli of the 60s, you know, because she wasn't what she said she was. And wow. it's a crying shame. She kind of got blacklisted, but the, the music is phenomenal. That's so phenomenal. who cares whether it's this or that or that or this or, you know, uh, same thing when Gillian Welch came out, you know, like Gillian Welch came out and everybody loved her. And then they found out that she was not from the holler. She was from L.A. And all of a sudden there was this kind of like pushback, like, oh, we've been tricked and we we hate you, artist. And it's like Gillian Welch just loved that music and she sang what felt good to sing. That was balm to her soul. There ain't no problem with that. Now, if she says, "Yeah, I was raised in the holler uh, with the pigs and the and, and the and the uh, uh, the revenueers and the still," then, then that's a problem because she's presenting herself as a false personality. But she never did that. You know, she was always honest about where she came from. Ima um, Sumac wasn't honest. You know, um, there was, and I'm sure probably there was probably some you know sketchy Broadway <laughs> promoter who said, "Oh, this this lady's perfect," and and conned her into doing the, the deception. But uh, as long as you're not, as long as you're doing it with love in your heart and honoring uh, uh, the the sounds that are coming before you, you know, we shouldn't be proprietary about cultural uh, sounds. We should say, "Good, put them all together," because that's really where we're going. And it, you, you take all the beautiful sounds from, you know, like the Balkan music and, and all of a sudden the Balkans are, are blending with the Klezmer people and the Klezmer are, are blending with the, the bluegrass people. And music is so crazily beautiful right now, if you, if you, if you listen, because all of those, it's, it's, it's a mosaic of sounds that represent the whole world that's starting to come together, which is, I guess, why they call it world music now. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned that, Rain, because I was concerned about are are people going to get upset? And I I even mentioned it to Jim. I was like, oh, this is going to be a wonder people are going to get mad that I'm kind of, you know, not doing it properly. And that's why we have been very clear from the beginning that they know this is a memory of someone. 
that, you know, that does not live in Venezuela, that has not gone through the dictatorship for the last 30 years. You know, I lived in a Venezuela that's gorgeous, that was, that was democratic, that was full of music and art. And, and, you know, it was just an absolutely paradise, you know. So that's where I grew up. And now we have what we have. So I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that not only that I am that, uh, that I am an, an expat, you know, I, 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 I wish I could go back to my country. I can't, you know, and, uh, and I can't, not just because I can't, it's just because I'll probably get eaten alive because I've been in the United States for so long and the situation is so dark and you need to know so much about how do you do this? How do you do that? Where do you get the money to what guy do you give the money to do this? Where do you get the gas? Where do you get the food? You gotta like learn every corner, like in Cuba, you know, you gotta know, you gotta learn all the black spots or where you find things. And that's what I mean. I've eaten a lot. I'm sure everybody's very nice and everybody is also fabulous. Uh, but I'm just saying in general, as, as a naive person that still remembers it how it was, I don't, I'm no longer a part of that. You know, I, I couldn't possibly assume that I understand it. I know the suffering from my family and from what we know of in the news, but uh, but it's not something that I'm living with every day. So I wanted to be very clear that I am I'm mean, doing this from a, a memory from of of what it was uh, for me Venezuela and uh, and that it shows. And this is another thing I said to Jim: is it's not a happy album. I don't want it to be. <laughs> this is not a joyful. This is a, a, a it's a, a requiem almost of a country. You know. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, we, wanted, we wanted it to be a, a send off of, of, of love and, and, you know, and, and show again that the thing, the songs of our song in the 1800s to the 50s, because I think one of the youngest songs in the album was written in 1952. Uh, and the rest are all 18, early 1900s is when they, they start showing and, but even even then, like looking at those songs uh, now, they are very relevant to what's happening in our political situation, uh, and and uh, so with the lyrics, so this kind of sadness of a you know of love for country, love for fighting, love for for you know that that you stand for, and so many a lot of the lyrics refer to that to to the love of something that even though it doesn't love you, you love it. <laughs> so so it is doesn't about the, doesn't the title. Doesn't the title, uh, I, I don't speak Spanish, uh, doesn't the title inform on that? Yeah, it is. It is, exactly. Despechada is like heartbroken. Uh, mm. Exactly, heartbroken. And uh, and it also is like, you know, when someone is in the bar drinking the beers and drinking their sorrows, that person is Despechada. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's someone who is out there crying in the streets and all that after heartbreak, that person is Despechada. And that's how I feel about it. You know, as you know about all of it for me, it's, I feel heartbroken for sure. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing about that. Um, yeah, well, I uh, not just because I've just met Jim for the first time and I've known you for 20 plus years, but I agreed with both of you anyway because I was listening and going, yeah, that that tracks. That tracks, I believe, exactly how your interpretation, Jim, I love that, and Anne, I know that about you, and how it has been just a heartbreak for you to watch your country deteriorate. Um, 
and to not be able to help and to feel displaced from it. And so it to me, it sounds like you both put your hearts and souls into it, and Paul Fanfar as well, and all the musicians and everyone who, and John Keane who mastered it. It's just, it's a perfect record, and I'm so grateful that Launch Left got to be associated by by putting it out on our label. And uh, what, if anything else, would you like to leave our listeners and watchers about uh, your collaboration or art or music? Please feel free to share a little bit more before we sign off. Well, I recommend anybody to bother Jim White because he's an amazing producer and he he's, he's just one of the most professional, most amazing, fun person to be with. And I just highly recommend having a real, it's like going to the best Disneyland on earth when you hang out in his house. If you're a musician, you're in heaven. And, and then just the whole way you go about uh, the listening. Uh, of me, I think that even without, no, I mean, we didn't know each other. I mean, I, of course, been a fan for a long time. It is, but our friendship and the way that he's able to get, get me, you, know, you got me, you know, even though you didn't understand the lyrics and any of that. But let me tell you something about Jim White that he told me the story later is that he actually has done this before. He did a film, a short film, which I happen to love, where he didn't speak the language at all and he directed and did the whole thing. Well, it was in, it was in Switzerland or no, Sweden. Denmark. Den Denmark. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I had to write and direct a film for a Danish film festival. And uh, so I wrote a script and they liked the script and they got like the best actor in Denmark, uh, amazing character actor. And uh, the, the the rule was we had one day to shoot it, um, and it's wow. twenty minute film. I, I don't do things short ever. Um, so, uh, and I thought, okay, well, it's going to be a challenge. And then when we got there, and they said, well, it it has to be in Danish. And so it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know that. And so the actors would come and they say the lines, and I didn't know if they were saying, you know, you know. I like spaghetti for dinner or they were saying, you know, what, what the lines were. So I had to just kind of hope that, that, that it worked out. Um, it's a real cool festival. It, it just reminds you what happens when the arts are funded. Um, this festival gets $25 million from the queen of Denmark and they don't have to make money. They can just bring interesting art to Denmark. Um, and so, you know, like at a certain point I was like, gee, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 you're going to spend $10,000 making this film. And he said, don't worry about it. And they got me like the best film crew. They got me the best actor. They got me everything. Um, wow. And it was a really beautiful experience. Aarhus Festuge. Uh, Aarhus is in the, it's the second largest city in Denmark after Copenhagen. Um, but it's just a reminder of what a little bit of help from the government does. Same with Minnesota, where Paul is. They earmark a certain amount of the, the budget for the arts. Wow. And that's why Minnesota is one of the most thriving uh, arts hubs in America, uh, because they support the artists there. <laughs> Did that have anything to do with Prince? Did he Was he part of that, since he's from know. that neck of the... I wouldn't be surprised if somehow just his influence, his awesome influence, Prince. Minneapolis, Minnesota, isn't that his town? Yeah, it sure was. I, I, I feel like I like I feel like I could see him sitting on local government around the arts a little. Just like give some money to artists. I, I we talk about this actually, this has come up in the last few episodes. We've been talking about how different countries, you know, 
provide sponsorship, money, tour support, all these things that like we just in, in North America, we do not ever even understand what that is like to just go, oh, here's a grant that's really easy to just grab to go on tour. or And so we've had this conversation with multiple artists and they were like, how are we getting one here? We've been talking about it. So it's nice to know that in Minneapolis, there is there is a little bit of that going on and maybe we can make that happen in all, um, all our cities and towns because it would certainly make for a better world if we could all make music without having to uh, slog at a day job every time. It's, it's good for business. I mean, I, I went to NYU. I took a class in, in, in arts and culture and there are plenty of studies that prove that if you invest in the arts in a town, the town experiences more tourism, more business, because it's it's an attractive place to bring people to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you had your choice of going to, you know, Akron or going to, you know, Asheville, which would you go to? You, well, I'd go to Akron, but everyone else would go to Asheville. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the underbelly uh, side of things. But, uh, you know, it's just it's just good business to to support the arts. And that's something that Americans really haven't ever figured out or American American politics. Yes, exactly. There's been wonderful patrons, but also where are they? I feel like you can, there's enough people now just make a nice big fund, a pool of resources for artists to grow in each community. Because like you said, that just means a better community for all, you know, it doesn't, it's not like everyone has to become famous from it. It's really just about the arts flourishing because that creative spirit, that thinking outside the box, trying things that aren't, you know, culturally relevant um, doing it your way, those things really help to influence the next generation to see that there is a, a path through that is for all of us and that you don't have to fit a certain mold in order to have value. And I think that's just so important. For- or that it's going to be the nobotism, you know, like, oh, you can only know, but you can only make it if you know somebody. It's like, what if you're amazing? And I mean, it, it gives really opens the door to absolutely everybody. Yes. Trying to follow the same the same. Everybody is welcome. And then we'll be imagine the stuff we would be listening to if we had something like that, uh, with all the talent that is happening out there every day with these kids and and they're old people <laughs> that are doing good stuff. <laughs> now the more music, the merrier for sure. And, and and thank you, Rain, for taking us on a lunch left, taking this album because I know it's also a big deal. You're you know, in the sense that it's a big sacrifice for you. Uh, to put an album that is in Spanish, that is just like, you know, it's, it's a big deal. No, it, it's it's not-, not a sacrifice. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being on Launch Left. So happy to have you on the label. It is like my favorite record we've put out so far. So thank you both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is Ana Diaz Carmela from Despechada, produced by Jim White and Paul Fonfara under Launch Left label. Thank you for having us.
Left aims to create an intentional space that highlights and empowers all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice but a necessity. Launch Left begins with music, but its ultimate aim is to launch left of center artists in all creative fields. 